Good evening and welcome to the final session in A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. As we begin tonight, let's remember two primary goals for the entire series. One is to understand more deeply the historic Christian biblical doctrine of marriage, sexuality, and gender. Two, to learn how to hold this doctrine with more compassion and with more love and more wisdom so that we produce real safety and real welcome for LGBTQ people and their families and anyone wrestling with their sexual and gender identity. So we've been on quite a journey together over the last two months. And I've hoped we've learned more about both doctrine and posture. Like two wings of an airplane, grace and truth. And unfortunately, one part of the church in America is trying to fly with one wing and thinks that justifies severing off the other wing. And another part of the church in America has tried to fly with that other wing severing off the opposite one. So what we've been doing throughout this series is to, to try to do both of these things, to try to hold the doctrine and live out the posture of Jesus's welcome. So to do this, we've dug deep into scripture to see not only what Christians believe, but why we believe it refusing to settle for cliches and sound bites. We've labored to cultivate grace and compassion for anyone who feels marginalized or like a sexual other because their struggle is different from the majority's struggle. I've tried to model a kinder, humbler, more gracious tone in how to talk about the most private, impactful, personal parts of people's lives. And we've asked some gay friends to help us to use the right language, to avoid saying things that are unnecessarily offensive, and to understand how the way we talk and the way we act makes LGBTQ people and their families feel our structure today will be the same as it has been for several weeks. We'll start again by hearing from Spencer and Dylan. They're each going to take three or four minutes to pick up where they've left off over the last several weeks. Today, they're going to talk a little more about the messy journey since coming out. Then I'll teach and then we'll have Q&A. You, you should have received three slips of paper and an index card. The three slips of paper all relate to the teaching, the lecture, uh, questions you can write for me for the first half of the Q&A, dealing with the material I cover in the lecture or one of the previous week's lectures, if you would like. The second half of the q and I'll invite Spencer and Dylan back up and questions that you put on those index cards, we'll use those for the second half. All right, so with that being said, Spencer and Dylan, if you'll both come on up, and I'm going to, um, I thought it would be more comfortable for you if you could sit, and uh, 
I'll let the two of you sit there. And did y'all draw straws to see who would go first? All right. And um, I'm going to sit down over here. And then after you two finish, I'll come back up. So I'll pray first, and then Dylan will lead us. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this afternoon. Thank you for this chance that we have to study the Bible together, to listen, to learn. Thank you for Spencer and Dylan's remarkable courage and the gift they're giving us. Be with them now, Lord. Help them to be at ease and comfortable and um, to see love in our hearts and our faces as we listen and learn from them. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so I spoke a couple weeks ago, and just to refresh everybody, um, in adolescence, I found out that I was gay. Um, I decided to keep these feelings a secret. I didn't tell anyone. Um, And what stemmed from this is that I felt very isolated, very depressed, and very anxious all the time because I was keeping so much secret from my friends and family. I also felt a lot of like shame around the feelings that I had. Um, I eventually did come out to friends and eventually also to my immediate family and I was very well received by those people. Um, And that's kind of where I left off. So um, leaving off, after I came out, the feelings of isolation and depression and anxiety kind of receded a little bit because I wasn't hiding who I was to the people I cared about anymore. Um, And you might think that this would be the end of my journey, but really this was just kind of the beginning for me. Um, There was still a part of me, the part of me that would pray every night to God for him to take away my desires. Um, That part of me still wanted to be cured. Um, I still thought that somehow I was going to be straight. Um, So a couple of years of progress and like nothing was really changing. The desires still weren't going away. Um, And I kind of faced three really difficult truths. Um, The first one is that if I were to pursue men romantically, that that would conflict with my own faith. And therefore, I feel like I could never be satisfied in a relationship like that. Um, But if I were to pursue women, then there would be no attraction there for me to feel like that relationship was healthy for me or um, my girlfriend or wife. Um, But I also knew that singleness felt very isolating, and I thought that I would just be very alone for the rest of my life. Um, So there was no easy answers. Um, and eventually what I had to do is I was trying to pursue relationships with men, women, and singleness, all to varying levels of failure. Um, and in kind of this messiness of maybe trying to date men or trying to date women, um, or trying to be single, I found out that, um, Eventually, I was taught that our right to sex, or we don't have a right to sex or romantic relationships. Um, 
And the second thing that I found out is that we don't value singleness the way that I feel like God values singleness. Um, so even though I've learned these lessons along my journey and I try and share those and advocate for those in the communities I'm a part of, um, it's still a very messy um, messy thing for me to live through because I still every now and then will try um, pursuing relationships with men or women um, and also try to be single. So, you know, it's definitely a hard journey, but in that I've found um, these good things that I think God has taught me that I want to try and like share with other people. So. Hello. Um, sent a little, another little background refresher for you guys if all of you weren't here last week. Um, I was also closeted for the majority of my adolescence and I came out to some friends slowly throughout high school. But then I came out to my parents in January. Um, I'm pansexual and I feel like since I've come out, it has been incredibly, incredibly difficult, but it's also been very beautiful and very life-giving. My parents and I have been able to have a lot of very meaningful and productive conversations, and I don't, that did not happen overnight. It took a lot of practice, and it took a lot of patience from my dad and I, specifically, because we're very similar, and we butt heads a lot. So I really appreciate them being willing to learn about me and being able to learn about things that they didn't necessarily have a lot of knowledge in. And I think that helped our relationship grow a lot. And it also helped me feel more comfortable in myself. And I think that it probably, like, it helped me heal from a lot of the pain that they caused me, just seeing all of the effort that was being put in to understand me and know me. And so as all of this is happening, has been happening, I've been able to have really good conversations with a lot of people in my life, and that's been really good, and it's felt very freeing. And I think also I've made more friends and made connections with people that I wouldn't have made in the first place if I hadn't have come out, and that's been something that's been very special and important to me. Um, I think I also don't feel as much shame or guilt about who I am as a person now that I'm out because it's not a secret and I can kind of just talk about it freely without thinking about a bunch of things in the back of my head. So that's where I'm at and that's really all I have to say. Thank you, Spencer and Dylan. Okay, how do we draw all of this to a close? I want to do that by going back, back to the f culture in which Christianity um, came into being. The Roman Empire at the time of Christianity was a slave society. In fact, ancient Roman, Rome organized its life around one of history's most extensive and complex systems of slavery. It sprawled across 500 years and three continents. Rome trafficked in tens of millions of slaves. 
At the time Christianity was coming onto the scene, one in 10 families in the Roman Empire owned slaves. And the number in the cities and the towns was twice that. So one in five families. In ancient Rome, slaves were everywhere. And that meant sex was everywhere. It meant sex was freely available because you see, a slave does not own her body. And whether it's ancient Rome or the U.S. South, the sexual use of slaves is one of the most persistent cross-cultural features of slave systems. And so sexual exploitation was ingrained in the whole social fabric of the Roman Empire. About 30 years before Jesus was born, the Roman poet Horace published his first work, The Satires. It's an exploration of the secrets of human happiness. It established, established Horace as one of the great poetic talents of the Augustine age. In this celebrated book, here are some of the lines of poetry he wrote. Quote, if your loins are swollen and there's some home-born slave boy or girl around where you can quickly stick it, would you rather burst with tension? Not I. I like an easy lay. You see, Christianity was born in a culture that in the words of one historian, for freeborn men, slaves played something like the part that masturbation has played in most cultures. It is so disorienting for us today to think about sexuality and sex and gender. The gale force winds of individualism and expressivism along with the deep stories that everywhere today focus on a particular view of freedom as choice and romantic love as irresistible force. These these pressures in our society are making it hard for us to think deeply about a Christian view of sexuality and gender. And so I've found it helpful to realize that the early church was born in a similar context where the culture was making it so radically difficult to think through these issues. At its beginning, Christianity had the view that sex and the body was very different than what the Greco-Roman world was saying about sex in the body. And so I've found this helpful move to look at what Christianity was up against and how the early Christians responded. And I've found that this helps me see more clearly what the truth is about sex and gender and sexuality today. And so for this last session, I'm going to walk through what it means for all of us, married and single, straight and gay, cisgendered and gendered minorities, what it means for all of us to discover paths to love, paths to give and receive love in ways that lead to flourishing. That's all of our calling. We're all called to paths of love. And when we see how the early Christians responded to the expectations and pressures and beliefs in their environment, I think we can more clearly see how we should respond today to the expectations and the pressures and beliefs that we are um, a part of.
Now, the pressure you would face when it came to sex at the time of Jesus depended on what group of people you were a part of. And there were three groups of people. There were freeborn men, freeborn women, and slaves. Let's talk about the sexual pressures on freeborn men. For them, sex was considered a fundamental drive, a need, like the need for food, a basic human instinct. And society was organized at the time of Jesus to deliver sexual satisfaction to freeborn men cheaply and easily. If you were a slave, you had no rights and no business expecting rights. You were going to be exploited and quite likely from an early age. So try to imagine how countercultural it was for the great Christian bishop, John Chrysostom, to say, as he did in one of his sermons from the fourth century, it is wrong for a married man to have sex with prostitutes or slaves. I am aware that most of you think, now he's talking to the church, that most of you think it's adultery only to violate another married woman. But I say it is wicked and licentious to have an affair even with a public whore, a slave girl, or any other woman without a husband. And then he said, I know this is illogical, but it's true. He's talking to the church. He's trying his best to say to the church something that everybody in the room is like, that don't make no sense. It's wrong to have sex with the prostitute. The church, that did not make sense to them. And so this helps us to come to grips with the fact that God's design for sex is not always accepted by society. It doesn't always make sense to the church. The early church had a hard time understanding why it was wrong to have sex with prostitutes. So the fact that it's hard for you to understand why it's wrong to do this or that or the other with regard to sex, that all that is pointing to is that the Christian sexual ethic has often been illogical even to Christians. A marriage between a man and a woman, this is where the church has always taught sex belong. We should never underestimate the remarkable oddity of Christians from the very beginning insisting that sex belongs only exclusively in a heterosexual marriage. And this helps us to, today to remember that our society can form our viewpoints so that our own moral intuitions are something we should doubt, we should not trust. So what we're going through now with some parts of sexuality and gender is something the church has gone through before. I see that when I look at the sexual pressure on freeborn men at the time of the early church. Now, what do we see when we look at the sexual pressure on slaves at the time of the early church? Remember, many of the first Christians were slaves. When you gathered to worship on Sunday with your church, a significant percentage, sometimes the majority of the people in the room were slaves. And for them, there was a constant, unavoidable requirement to have sex, regardless of your gender or age. A slave had to satisfy the sexual 
desires of freeborn males. This was inconceivably brutal. The most chilling evidence of this reality is something that archaeologists have discovered not long ago. They found an iron slave collar, a typical means of preventing or punishing slave flight. It was discovered at Bulla Regia in North Africa, still clasped around the neck of a skeleton. The collar's inscription read, I am a slutty whore, retain me. I have fled Bulla Regia. This was the sexual pressure on slaves. One of the most learned Christians of the first, fourth century was Eusebius of Caesarea. He was the bishop of Caesarea Maritima, a great biblical scholar and a well-regarded historian of Christianity. He wrote the first surviving history of the church. One of the stories he tells is the story of a woman by the name of Patamiana. Patamiana was a slave. She was a Christian. She refused the sexual advances of her owner. And here is what Eusebius wrote about the price she paid. Quote, endless the struggle that in defense of her chastity and virginity, which were beyond reproach, she maintained against lovers for her beauty of body as of mind was in full flower. Endless her sufferings till after tortures too horrible to describe, she faced her end with noble courage. Slowly, drop by drop, boiling pitch was poured over different parts of her body from her toes to the crown of her head, such was the battle won by this girl. Like countless early Christian martyrs, Patamiana died because she chose to be faithful unto death rather than violate the grain of the universe, the ways of God, the will of God, the design of God for sex. And her commitment to chastity was what caused her to be turned into the government as a Christian. The way they figured out she was a Christian was her commitment to chastity. So we've seen the sexual pressure on freeborn men was remarkable. The sexual pressure on slaves. Now, what about the sexual pressure on freeborn women? What can we learn from that? Well, to understand what a freeborn woman faced at the time of the early church, we need to imagine something that is completely outside of living memory. And that is, we need to imagine what it was like to live at a time when the average span of life was far shorter than it is today. Did you know that in the, in the United States, if you were born in the year 1900, the average life expectancy for those who survived birth in the year 1900 was 47 years old. Just 120 years ago, if you survived birth, the average life expectancy was 47. This is something we've forgotten. We live on the other side of what historians call, quote, the great transition. 
In the 17th century in parts of Northern Europe, significant changes began to occur that gradually transformed human life expectancy. These changes had to do with agricultural technology and transportation that resulted in better food production and better food distribution. Then in the 18th century and into the latter 19th century, medical innovations, including vaccines and sanitation, began to take effect along with a much better distribution of wealth. And the result of all this was a series of medical, of major advances in treating diseases and applying health care on a widespread basis. So in Europe, overall, The life expectancy in 1800 was 33 years. In the year 2000, it was 80. That's called the great transition, more than doubling life expectancy in a period of 200 years. Now imagine life in the high Roman empire before the great transition. Imagine life where Christianity was beginning. The infant mortality rate was 25%. You could count on one quarter of your children dying as infants. And for those who survived infancy, the ranks thinned out drastically as the years passed. For babies who survived childbirth, the average life expectancy was the mid twenties. Okay. This is a primary reason that freeborn women were expected to do what? Marry soon. You don't get adolescence, right? As soon as you go through puberty, you, you marry soon and you make babies. The bottom line, the unavoidable reality for a freeborn woman, the ironclad pressure of society was when it came to your sexuality was to get married, have sex and bear children for the empire. Women in the ancient world did not have the freedom to delay marriage or avoid it. One woman who tried was St. Agatha of Sicily. This was in the early part of the third century, somewhere around 231 and 251 AD. God called St. Agatha to be single, to devote her life to prayer. And there was this powerful Roman senator who was smitten by her. And he proposed marriage numerous times, but she kept saying that God had called her to be single. So she declined the proposal. And so he had her tortured, including, at least according to legend, having her breasts cut off. She was 20 years old. A few years later, and in a town about 50 miles away, there was another young woman named Lucy who was born to a wealthy family. Like Agatha, she made a vow of celibacy. And then she gave her fortune away. Both of these bad moves. There was a man who wanted to marry her. When she took a vow of celibacy, refused to get married and gave her her fortune away, he denounced her as one of those Christians. So she was brought to trial before the governor of Syracuse. He ordered Lucy to burn a sacrifice to the emperor's image. When she refused, he forced her into prostitution. When she refused to participate in prostitution, they burned her and killed her with the sword. Now, we live in a time That has some relevant similarity, not not entirely relevant, thanks be to God. 
But there are some relevant similarities to that ancient Roman culture. For example, today, sex is considered by many to be a a necessity for young men. To be a drive that must be fulfilled in order to have a happy, healthy life. And furthermore, in the Protestant and evangelical church, we, like the Romans, have made marriage an idol. And we will persecute you if you are not married. I wonder if it's possible for us to imagine why any woman in, the, in ancient Rome would make the choices that Lucy and Agatha and Potamiana made. But these are our foremothers. Our foremothers embodied the possibility of a very different way of life from what the empire expected for women. They wanted to live as though it really were possible for our whole lives, our whole bodies to be for the Lord. And when they did that, people noticed. And then, like today, chastity, sexual faithfulness, is a scandal to the world. Eusebius tells us that Patamiana's martyrdom was the catalyst for the conversion of her executioner, Basilides. Her complete devotion to the Lord, signified by her virginity, was a witness, one that God used to bring someone else, her murderer, to Christ. Radical faithfulness spoke powerfully in the early days of Christianity, and it will again today. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to be faithful in the way that Jesus Christ is faithful. And it is through this faithfulness that the Christian view of sex, the Christian story of sex, is a far, far better story than the story our society offers. It is through our faithfulness to the Lord in our bodies that the better story of God and sex and human flourishing will go public today in our world as it did in the early church. What if the radical transformation of our society from a society of injustice hinges on the sexual faithfulness of the church today? Remember several lectures ago, the radical transformation of the Roman Empire had had at the center of its transformation the faithfulness of Christians sexually. What if we're in a similar moment today? Let's talk about these two ways that we can honor God with our bodies as Christian. One, marriage that is faithful. Two, singleness that is celibate. Two ways that as Christians, we can bear witness to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And both are radical today. Let's first talk about the radical faithfulness of bearing witness to God with your body while being a single today. If you've brought along a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. I wish that all were as I am myself. This is Paul talking. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and another of another. Then look at verse 8. To the unmarried, now skip down to verse 10, to the married. 
What's going on here is that Paul is describing both marriage and singleness as a gift. Does the evangelical church today believe that singleness is a gift? Why do we have words like old maid or spinster? Because we don't believe that. Because we think that marriage is default. And singleness is for the unlucky or the immature, or the incapable. But marriage here, Paul says, I wish that all were as I am of itself, but each has his own gift from God. Verse 8, unmarried, singles. Verse 10, married. We see this over and over in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, Jesus says the exact same thing. And now think about how radical this was in the society in which that was being written. Remember, the New Testament was written in the midst of a society where women were considered valuable as long as they were married and had lots of children. Infertile women, especially widows and divorced women, were less valuable in that age. And then Christianity comes along and we hear the message that in God's kingdom, that's not true anymore. And so suddenly you find these remarkable singles, People who have found the kingdom of God to be their source of identity. And so to remain single and chaste, even if it meant you died, whether you were male or female, this was a radical act of declaring that God is your everything. So much so that you don't need marriage or children to secure your place in society or your legacy after you die. God and not the empire was the meaning of life. Service in the kingdom of heaven and not family or country was the measure of a life well lived. Conversion through Jesus Christ, not birthing babies, was what made a woman of value. Holy virgins were a powerful statement to what God could do. This is so strange to us today. The idea of being a celibate single as a calling, as a vocation and not an accident or not a mistake. It's so hard for us in the church today to realize this because in the church today, like the Roman Empire, we've made an idol out of marriage. I think there are two reasons it's hard for us to think about being single as a gift and a calling. First of all, I think it's difficult because we are filled with the stories our society tells, the stories we analyzed in our second and third and fourth sessions, the stories of romantic love, which have convinced us that true love, romantic love, is the way we're saved. The stories about identity, stories that assume that people need to have sex to be happy, to be fulfilled, to live lives full and flourishing, and the stories that have made freedom, freedom of choice, a fetish. We fetishize choice. Remember, this is one of those things that Christians seem to be just as committed to as non-Christians. What I'm saying is that the way our culture, both inside the church and outside the church, is committed to the fetish of choice, the idol of choice. That choice can, in the way we relate to choice, it makes it harder for us to see how God is working in unchosen circumstances. We have this gut reaction if we're in a circumstance that we didn't choose and don't want, that we, we struggle to see gifts in that. Eve Tushnet, one of the most articulate gay Christians I've ever come across, wrote in her most recent book, I'm not good at celibacy. 
I would not have chosen it for myself. I don't even feel a call to it. Over time, I think I'm learning to love it because I've accepted it. Some gifts you're not called to. Some vocations you aren't called to. And will only become something you love if you accept it. Second, I think the vocation of singleness can sound strange and threatening to those of us in the church because Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, has reversed the early church's celebration of virginity and celibacy. Many Christians now act as though marriage and with its sex represents the fullest life. I frequently hear Christians equating maturity with marriage. Being single is not a character deficiency. Not having sex is not about a lack of wholeness. And so for those of you who are single, when you don't have sex, when you live as a single without sex, you are a witness to the dignity and the purpose of the body. You are bearing witness to the fact that being human is not about selfish pleasure, that being human is about glorifying God. You are bearing witness to the fact that there is more to life than easy indulgence. And you are a witness to the faithfulness of God who empowers us to be faithful in singleness. A vocation to celibacy is a vocation into something. Celibacy is much less about giving up and more about opening up. If you're single, don't wait around for life to start, for kingdom work to start. There's kingdom work to be done. There are books to be written, cars to be fixed, hikes to go on, art to be made, friendships to cultivate, and a big world full of people desperate for an embodied witness to Jesus Christ. We need to stop saying to our children when you get married. That's bad theology. When you have children. We need to say to our children, there are two ways to live the Christian life, married and single. Let's stop telling our kids when you get married and have kids and say things like, do you think your calling is to marriage or singleness? I wonder what path of love God has for you. I can't wait to walk that path with you. We need to stop assuming that marriage is what our kids will do when they grow up. And we need to die to that dream way before they get to the moment to let us know that their path is a different one than we dreamed. A vocation to celibacy is a calling to a worthy life. We need to recognize that it's films like Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, and The Little Mermaid, not the Bible. It's Disney films that say marriage is the ultimate answer to life's pain. Let's stop saying to single men and women, when when are you going to settle down or seeing anyone special? Instead, let's learn to say, I am so blessed by the life you live. We've got to change the way we talk to people who are not married because our language and our speech patterns betray our wrong views. Singles are not in transition. Married people haven't arrived. Do you have any married friends? You think they've arrived? Single people are not incomplete. Married people are not complete. Single women who buy houses aren't spinsters and older singles aren't losers. Men and women are precious, period. 
And your preciousness is unconditional. There is nothing we can do, nothing that can happen to us that can take away our status as free, image-bearing children of the Creator. And so if you're a single person, the central calling of your life is to grow in your affection for God and neighbor. That's what it all comes down to. That, and that applies, by the way, to married people too. So let's talk for a moment then about the radical faithfulness of bearing witness to God with your body through marriage. It's hard. As hard as celibacy is, faithfulness in marriage is difficult. There are three things about marriage that we desperately need to learn in the church today because Christians today have forgotten three important facts about marriage. Number one, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, again, Paul wrote, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Then look at verse 8, to the unmarried, that's one gift, to the married, verse 10. Singleness and marriage, these are callings. Like Dylan said, they're not a right. None of us have a right to marriage. And so if we don't get it, it's not denying a right. I'm talking theologically. We did this several weeks ago. When we're talking about marriage politically, we're talking about a whole lot more than what I'm talking about now. We're also talking about a lot of human rights, like the right to get into the ICU with your loved one. But when we're talking about marriage from a theological perspective, it is a calling. It is not a right. No one has a right to get married. It's a gift. It can be hard to think of marriage in this way. The reason it's hard for us is because beginning in 1967, the Supreme Court ruled on several occasions that marriage is a basic civil right. It's an issue of freedom and equality. And so over the past 60 years, the church has adopted that definition of marriage. It is a civil right. This is the reason it's hard for us to think of marriage as something else, as a calling, as a gift. A second thing we need to see about marriage is in Matthew chapter 19, this passage we looked at many weeks in a row where they came to Jesus and they were asking him questions about marriage. And he said, have you not read from the beginning? In this passage, we see that since marriage is a gift, a calling, a vocation, it is more than a private choice to enter into a union. It involves a call from God and a response from two people who promise to build, with the help of divine grace, a lifelong, intimate, sacramental partnership of love and life. So here's how this impacts what we're talking about in the whole series. The call to marriage is a particular way of serving God in the world. The call to singleness is a particular way of serving God in the world. Two ways to serve God in the world. We've not only turned marriage into a right, we've also redefined marriage as a personal paradise, a personal choice, a way of fulfilling personal dreams. Think about how far short we fall of helping our children and ourselves think about marriage as a calling, as a way of serving God. When I, when I was falling in love with Janelle, I went to my dad one day, uh, this was 30 years ago. I, I, I remember walking into the garage. My dad had turned the garage into a wood shop. It was on a Friday or a Saturday. He's standing at the table saw. I wait till the table saw turns off for obvious reasons. And I said, dad, 
I think I want to marry Janelle. How do I know if it's God's will or not? I'm in love with her. How can I see this clearly? And dad's response was exactly right. He said, son, the question is this. Can you serve God better married to her or being single? My dad knew it. He knew that marriage is for the service of God in the world. First and foremost, do you know that? Or have you looked at singles that are lonely and believe that marriage is for the solution of loneliness? As you imagine a life for your child unmarried, do you imagine them lonely as a result of that? Have you shifted marriage from a calling of service to a personal paradise? The third thing we need to see about marriage is even more challenging, and it's this. The family created by marriage is not the most important relationship a person has. Let me show you what I mean. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus refused to be simply one more name in a long list of loved ones. Flip back one book to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 21 And when his family heard him, talking about Jesus, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Drop down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Remember how strong the pressure was to get married and have babies at this moment? So imagine Jesus saying this. He is redefining family in terms of family based on loyalty to himself. In a culture in which the ties of blood had become everything, Jesus said there's a set of relationships that are more important, more basic, more fundamental, and they are based not on blood ties, but on the obedience of faith. One more, John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 25. Jesus is on the cross. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Until recently, the church has regularly had households bigger than biological family. How many churches, in, how many households in this church have within them more than biological family. 
Jesus is saying here, and the, the whole New Testament tells us this, the church is a household. Over and over, the New Testament calls the church a household. We're taught to call one another brothers and sisters. In the Old Testament, the structure of Israel was family-centered. The family was the most important, the most basic unit of society. And there are reasons for that. But in the New Testament, things shift. The family is still important. But the church is more basic. It is a more basic unit of society. It is the most important set of relationships. We looked at three instances of that with Jesus, where he surprised his followers by saying that. Now, this in no way jeopardizes the fact that God is still, he still has a very important role for the biological family. The New Testament is full of instructions about family life that need to be studied and obeyed. But we can only double down on them if we open up the household to include more than the biological family. The New Testament still praises marriage and childbearing as honorable and critical vocations. But if we don't open up our households to include singles, we are damning singles. We're saying, no, you can't get married and no, you can't live with me. So no, you can't have family. The point that needs to be understood here is the family is no longer central. The church is central. And this is why LGBTQ people can be profoundly welcomed in the church. Because we can welcome them all the way in. All the way into our households. The family is not God's most important institution on earth. The family is not the social agent that most significantly shapes and forms the character of Christians. The family is not the primary vehicle of God's grace and salvation for the world. Remember, sex is not the most important expression of love. The most important expression of love and intimacy in the life of the Christian is meant to be experienced in the Christian community, in the church. The church is God's most important institution on earth. The New Testament views the church rather than marriage as the primary place where human love is learned, expressed, and experienced. Unfortunately, we know that the church often comes up short on being a community that reflects genuine love. Too often, followers of Christ are not able to experience true intimacy in the church, and this is a problem. Now, let's circle back. To the, singleness, to the vocation of singleness in light of what we've just seen about marriage and family. If you're single and you're lonely and longing for human relationship, there is absolutely nothing wrong with the desire for intimacy. God isn't capricious. He doesn't want for you to be lonely. God does not delight in your broken heart. It's okay to long for human companionship. But we've been led to believe that a romantic relationship is God's answer to loneliness. But you can ask the mental health workers in our church. People in romantic relationships struggle with loneliness. Every bit as much as singles do. Marriage is not God's answer for loneliness. Genesis chapter 2 does not say that Adam was lonely. It says that Adam was alone. 
two very different realities being solved. Some of you in this room are in marriages and families and you are dying of loneliness. And there are people in our church who are not married and they have very full lives and they are not lonely. In the Bible, loneliness is consistently addressed through fellowship and friendship within the household of faith. Think of the many places in the New Testament where intimate fellowship is envisioned, like 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and through 21, or 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 8. Or think of Paul's famous love poem, often quoted at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, or Jesus' farewell discourse in John 13 through 16. These are the most precious, beautiful passages in the Bible on intimate fellowship, and none of them are about marriage. We can find real answers to real loneliness apart from marriage within the church. And this is hands down one of the most important issues in the entire series. Here's how Greg Johnson, a remarkable Christian man, a Presbyterian pastor who is gay and celibate. This is how he recently put it. He said, alongside shame, the soul-crushing reality of loneliness is the largest challenge faced by many gay people today. And the sad fact is that it's a challenge that often becomes more troubling when they join the church. So think about this. Think about how for the gay Christian, sexual attraction to members of the same sex is only one component of their orientation. Another large component is the absence of sexual attraction to members of the opposite sex. And for many, that is the much more painful reality. Not that they're attracted to the same sex, but that they don't have a sexual attraction to the opposite sex. Sexual temptation is something we all have to deal with. But for a gay Christian, a lack of sexual desire for members of the opposite sex is the reality that puts marriage out of reach. And since marriage becomes out of reach, a household becomes out of reach. And that means living permanently householdless. Can you imagine Now, imagine what it's like for the teenager who realizes they're gay. Can you imagine a 16-year-old girl? The thought of being alone for the entirety of her life. Think of the older woman in our church as it dawns slowly on her over the years that she will probably never marry. Think of all the pain, all the sorrow and despair that might fill your heart in that moment of recognition. Take a couple in our church who are trying to conceive a child only realizing that it's not going to happen. Think of how hard it is for them to watch baptisms of children or Christmas programs with children. Think of how hard it is for them to come to church on Mother's Day. Think of the heartache they experience when they attempt genuinely to be happy that another couple has announced a pregnancy. Enter into the pain of realizing God is denying you something your body was made for. 
Now take all of that pain and all of that sorrow and all of that heartache and all of that loss, which for most of these people is spread out very slowly over decades. But take all of that sorrow and pain and loss, both of the couple with infertility and the older woman in our church who discovers she'll never marry, combine all of that pain, front load it all at once onto a 16-year-old boy. And then look around at your church and there is no single person in your church living with a family. Treated as a family. The only way to get a family with refrigerator rights. The only way to get to know your roommate will never move away without a big discussion. Permanent instability. How can we address the beast of loneliness? The evangelical church has got two major problems with the LGBTQ community. One, we hold the doctrine without a posture of love. And two, we've idolized marriage and sealed off households from single people. It's hell. We have to change. The the LGBTQ community People in our church have to look around and see pathways to love. How, where is the pathway that they're going to give and receive love? Jesus redefined family for his followers. The church's family with all of its mutual duties and obligations to one another. Church's worship service is not enough. We do not need to get married in order to overcome loneliness unless we live in churches that have made idols out of marriage. Our true family is the church. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, strangers can become family, not just ideal family, but with the mutual obligations and roles that are meant by the word family. Marriage marriage should not be a pain for the singles. We need to be the kind of church where singles can own houses with others. Why is there no family in our church that owns a house with a single? Because we've made blood the idol. We need to be the kind of church where if you're single, we are a safe and healthy place and you can experience all the fullness of life where you don't feel like a second-class citizen, where your vocation and your calling is taken seriously and given honor and dignity, and being a person who is single is just as important as being married. It's just as serious and challenging and rewarding and beneficial to God's kingdom as being married is. And all of us, married people and single people, we need to raise the children of our churches to have a deep sense that there are two beautiful paths to serve God in this world. It may be marriage, and that will be really, really hard. And it may be singleness, and that will be really, really hard. But look around this church, and you can see people who have lived both faithfully. Because when we look at Scripture, we see that water is thicker than blood. The waters of baptism are thicker than the blood of relatives. And until we can live into that, we're going to continue to harm the LGBTQ community. Now, God is so good. 
He is so kind. He is so merciful. In Matthew chapter 11, he invites all of us, married, divorced, widowed, single, straight, gay, all of us, he says, come to me. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Life without Jesus, out of step with Jesus, will be a crushing burden. Life in step with Jesus requires taking his yoke, being disciplined to his will, but it does give rest because he will bear your burdens with you and for you. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for this time we've had together. Help us, Father, to become churches of radical faithfulness. Married and single, gay and straight, cisgendered and gender minorities. Help us to be a church, Father, that will hold the historic, biblical, Christian sexual ethic with courage and boldness and steadfastness and wisdom and compassion and love. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, you have about five minutes to write some questions down and turn them in, and then we'll have Q&A. Are you ready? Good afternoon, Callie. Hello. What about your wife or what about maybe your relationship as you were dating Janelle? What made you decide that you would serve God better by being married to her than you would by being single? (laughs) You should ask Janelle what a mess she stepped into when she started helping me and we started together to serve God. That's a really good question. I think that that's the kind of question I would like to sit down with someone over a long coffee and talk through. Um, I'm a better person married than I I was before I got married, but that's tricky because 30 years later, if I was a single person, I should be better than I was. I don't think I'm gonna, I don't think I can answer that right now. I have not recently thought back to my life 30 years ago. So I'm gonna pass on that one. Okay, well luckily I have another one. I could ask Janelle to come up and tell me what's better of what she has sorted out. But Janelle, does anything come to your mind though? (laughs) Do you wanna take a pass or do you wanna make a run at that question? Okay, thank you. All right. Okay, the other question I think is a good one. This is probably uh, could carry over to a couple of different sessions of the series. And I think Greg Johnson talks about this a good bit. When you say someone is a, a gay Christian, it seems like you're establishing their identity with um, 
with their sexuality or something that may struggle with, why label someone in that way? Wouldn't it be better to say, I, I don't want to be described myself as a lustful Christian or a greedy yeah. Christian. So okay. why, why do we? Absolutely. That? that is a wonderful question. Um, gay, I'm using gay to talk about a lot more than their erotic sexual desire. The word gay is just as full, be very careful here. Um, The word gay covers more than sex in the same way that heterosexual covers more than sex. So think about it this way. The heterosexual, the straight Christian, who has the capacity to lust after a person of the opposite sex, do they need to wake up every day and confess to God the sin of their capacity to lust after the opposite sex? No. I mean, you would just be walking around, right, in a continual state of, because I have the capacity, I am guilty. A person who is a gay Christian is not only lust at lusting after the same sex, just like a person who's a heterosexual Christian is not only thinking about sex all the time. My heterosexuality means lots of things. One of the things it means is that I'm not tempted to, to desire sex with my friend Keith. That's a part of it the lack of sexual attraction to people of the same sex. That's a part of my heterosexuality. A part of my heterosexuality is also the fact that I have to discipline my imagination and my desires to only my wife. Heterosexuality covers more than sex. The word gay does too. And one of the tricks that's happening in our culture, when we say to the person who says, I'm a gay Christian, you're baptizing sin. We are accidentally saying, all there is to your gayness is sin. What about the prevenient grace that they don't lust after women? Is that sinful? No, that's a gift. That's a gift within their gayness. There is more to gay Christian. If I'm only talking about lusting after people of the same sex, then it would be that. It would be baptizing, normalizing, approving. Paul himself said, of all sinners, I am the biggest. And chief of all the sinners. And he said that after he was a Christian. Um, this, is, this is one of the hardest things right now for the evangelical church is to wrap your mind around when a side B labels Christian says they're a gay Christian, they are not in any way affirming their brokenness. They, 
I've got so many gay Christian friends who are side B who have asked this so many times, and they're like, yeah, my identity is in Christ. Yeah, my desire to have sex with somebody the same sex. Yeah, if I give into that in lust, that is sin. I have to confess that. And they're not trying, it's not a Trojan horse. This is not trying to sneak approval of same-sex sex into the conversation. Heterosexuality is full of glories and brokennesses. Homosexuality is full of glories and brokennesses if homosexuality stretches out to be more than the act of lusting for the same sex. I want to clarify. So when someone says, if I say gay Christian, I'm just identifying you with sin, you're saying that wouldn't be correct because just being gay, you're not, you're not identifying them as... Yeah, I'm not talking just sinful. about the sin part. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would be like the... That would be like the heteros... I'm, I'm a heterosexual Christian. I am. Some of you are too. Now, does that include... Does that mean I only want to have sex with my wife? I'm only, that I'm not even capable of wanting to have sex with somebody other than my wife. No, it actually includes heterosexual struggle. So. Thank you. Yeah. I'll read this question straight up and then I'll uh, maybe ask, I'll give you an interpretive question following. Here's the question. When is the idea of a monastic life, in quotes, going to be okay again? Um, and so maybe the question behind that is, is there a place for the monastic life in Protestantism? And is that different than just the single life? Yes. Yeah, so the monastic life is available now. Um, my wife has said, I don't know if, still plans on this. If I die, she might take orders and become a nun um, because nobody else clearly can live up to this. <laughs> so she's just going to save some future man the disappointment of being living with a disappointed wife. No. The, there, are, there are Anglican monastic orders. There are Anglican orders of monks. Um, the Protestant world in throwing out Mary and monastic lives have greatly diminished the value of singleness. And we have to rediscover it. Yes, there are options. And yes, there's a place for it. And a difference would be that a monastic life is not just a life of singleness. It's also a life of devotion to prayer in a community, living that out in a particular kind of way. And I think the Protestant world is significantly disadvantaged because we don't have um, rich traditions of monasticism. Um, hey, so a few questions about the inclusion of single people within families. Um, the first one is, is the expanding of the household something all Christians are called to? Or is that a unique calling? And then a couple on just the practicals. How can we build this intentional community, single and married, to yeah, Church of the Incarnation? Wonderful. I'm so glad for that. And thanks for picking that one. Whoever asked that one, gold star. <laughs> um, not every single person wants to join a household. <laughs> There's, um, some of my single gay, I, I have gay single friends 
who really like the fact that they go home at the end of the day and there's nobody that they have to deal with. Um, I, have a, I have another gay friend who, who um, lives in a house with his pastor, his wife. He's a man my age. They own the house together. They own the furniture together. So it's the husband, the wife, the children, and the other man. And this has been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And it's the, it's the path of faithfulness in his life. It's the way he, he, he loves. Um, he's at the table. He does the dishes. He pitches into that in every single way. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm struck right now. I'm kind of embarrassed. Early, the, some of the leaders of early church are here, and they're like way down the road on this. They're like been waiting to teach us this. Um, so, read, read the question so again. So, the first got, one was, is it is something all Christians are called okay. to, and then how can we do this in an intentional way? Um, in the fourth century, the great bishop of Constantinople, I quoted him earlier, Chrysostom, uh, he, he preached in the the seat of the Roman Empire, and the emperor went to his church. His church was filled with wealthy people. And he often in his sermons challenged them to add a room to their house and call it the Christ room and to welcome other people in their house. The funny thing to me is I I don't have to preach to my house to build extra rooms. Probably most of the houses in the church have extra rooms. Maybe I just need to start saying, let somebody live in that room. (laughs) Um, We need to figure this out. Um, And there's going to be lots of different ways to do it and ways to do it well and ways to do it not so well and mistakes made along the way. Um, I think it's going to become even more important as the housing industry continues to go out of reach of a lot of the middle class. Um, But, you know, become a friend with with a single person. Ask them, would you like to have an experiment and live in my house for a couple of months? And then we reevaluate and see if either of us know enough about how to do this that it can actually work. Um, am I answering the question? Do I, I keep so. getting off? I'm, no, I think you are, but maybe, maybe just touching like apart from the whole, like living together. Cause some, a couple oh. of them were just about connection. So maybe even yeah. apart from the living. One of the things I love about our church is that so many of the households in our church, um, have converted Thanksgiving and Christmas from family holidays to holy days. And, you know, I know that our family has many t- times, a number of times over the years, had other people in our church um, spend the, week, the weekend with us around Christmas, and they wake up with us on Christmas Day, and we share gifts together around the tree together. Um, I don't know if we've ever had a Thanksgiving. Spencer, do you ever remember a Thanksgiving or a Christmas where there wasn't somebody at our table that wasn't a blood relative? I, you know, I can't remember. And maybe we have. I don't remember. Oh, during COVID. <laughs> Nobody wanted to come to our house during COVID. We were all sick with it. We kept inviting you peons, but you wouldn't know. <laughs> I do think that you can start by realizing that holidays are really holy days and quick treating them as if they're family days and bring other people into the womb of the family on these days, bring other families in. I love that about our church, that our church is a place. We can get a lot better at it. And to be honest, we've gotten worse at it since COVID. The whole of America is having a hard time coming back out of there. We, we learned habits in COVID where it's just we're tired at the end of the day and we've forgotten to, to reach out and things like that. I think that you need to assume that singles aren't going to be offended if you invite them to your family. You know, one of the things we've done with singles is said, look, this has become more difficult since Janelle is 
working outside the home, but to say dinner is at this time every night, you're always welcome to show up. And so it's about learning sets of habits and skills. Um, one of the challenges we've got to figure out is when both the mom and the dad, the husband and the wife are working, and so there's not always somebody home, that's actually making it hard for people to just drop by. Family just drops by. How can you get into a relationship with somebody who's not in your household so that they can actually just drop by and have refrigerator rights? So. Okay, one more. Okay, we're going to switch. Uh, Dylan and Spencer, come on down. for the la- Not you, Dylan, the other Dylan. Okay. Thought you were trying to steal the thunder. I'll let you sit in the middle, Captain. All right. All right, this is for Dylan and Spencer. What are your own personal thoughts and beliefs about choosing celibacy or singleness for yourselves? You don't have to answer that if you don't want to. And yeah, that's a personal question. Yeah, yeah. So. That's a tricky one. I'm affirming, so I don't see any... Um, wait, the question was what are thoughts on celibacy or choosing celibacy? Yeah, yeah. Personally, I don't think that I will choose it for myself, but I don't see any problem with other people choosing it. I think that that's a very personal decision And I also don't believe that side B Christians are being coerced into anything, as a little side note. Uh, Dylan, will you maybe explain something about what she just said there? Because that's a big deal that maybe not everybody understands, if if you want to. Like coerced into relationships, you mean? I don't, I'm not sure. Self-hating, I think. She was coerced into... Okay, coercion and celibacy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, this is something, like I said in my talk, that I'm still really struggling with, too. Um, there are days that it feels like I'm called to celibacy, but then there are days that feels like it's kind of forced upon me. Um, and I don't know that, like, I mean, I know that my emotions can lie to me, um, that doesn't make those days that it feels forced on me any easier though. Um, and that's when like, I really do value like intimate relationships outside of just romantic ones. Um, and that's why like, even in my celibacy, that's something that I'm trying to pursue with people. Um, I don't know if that answers. That's very good. Yeah, thank you. We didn't get a lot of index card questions this time. So this is the last one I'm going to ask you. And then if there are other things that you guys want to say in wrapping up, you can do that. So this is a question. This is to both Spencer and uh, uh, Dylan. Uh, Has incarnation uh, been a place where you've been able to experience human intimacy? Or you could also expand that to say, have there been things about our church that have made that difficult for you guys? This is a good one. Um, I think in a lot of ways, yes, it's been a really good church for me to get plugged into and have felt very welcomed into the community. Um, something about like 
people being like invited over to people's houses and like doors always being open. Um, I think that's good. Um, that there, but there are people like me who hear that and think they're just being nice, um, and that they don't really want me to just show up at their doorstep whenever. Um, and that's, I, I guess, like growing up, I've kind of trained myself to be as far removed as possible and cause as little problems as possible. Um, so for people like me, I really have to be like invited in a lot of the times. Um, and this church has done pretty well at that, so. I grew up going here, so I definitely feel like I have formed deep connections with people and kept those deep connections over the past like 10 years, I guess. Spencer or Dylan, we have just a few minutes left. Is there anything that hasn't come up that you think would be good for us to talk about or for you to get a chance to say? Nothing for you, Spencer. Not that I can think of right now. Dylan? I want to thank both of you so much. I love you. And I'm glad that you, you would be here. Spencer, I'm really impressed with you and glad that you're willing to say to our church, you know, ways you disagree. And um, I hope that you both can help us as a church to really live up to this amazing calling to be a safe and welcoming place where people can meet Jesus no matter where they are. So thank you all so much. Is there one more question from the other? Okay, we're good. All right, I'm going to share a few resources with you. When it comes to uh, marriage, I want to, uh, I've mentioned this book before. I think this is the best book out right now on marriage that isn't a pleasure-centered view of marriage. Pleasure is a part of marriage, but it's not the very center of marriage, but uh, that marriage is for the world and marriage is for God. It's called Married for God by Christopher Ashe, making your marriage the best it can be. I think that's excellent. If you're single, I think two very good books on singleness in the church right now I think this is the best one singled out. Why celibacy must be reinvented in today's church by Christine Kalan and Bonnie Field. This one is good, not as good, but it's good. Redeeming singleness, how the storyline of scripture affirms the single life. This is, I've, I've talked about this book before, but I want you to remember it. This is by Greg Johnson. He's a, a pastor in the Presbyterian Church. Um, he's a virgin. He talks about in here. He's never even held hands. He's my age. He's a celibate gay man. He has a PhD in theology. 
He, he loves his life. He's living a full life. And he's discovered pathways to fullness of life as a single man who, like Dylan said, I've heard him say some similar things to Dylan, like sometimes this calling is aching and overwhelming. And, but he also writes the story of how the church has held the doctrine without thinking about our posture in the way that's caused problems. And this is the best historical account of how the evangelical church shifted um, and got, went through about 40 years of not being very kind. Still time to care. What we can learn from the church's failed attempt to cure homosexuality. He's absolutely committed to the historic Christian sexual ethic. Um, just an amazing book is written by two psychologists, uh, Mark Yarhouse and Olya Zaporizhets, Costly Obedience, What We Can Learn from the Celibate Gay Christian Community. Lastly, two books that I think really show what Dylan was saying. He, he said that he's learning to pursue intimacy apart from sex in friendships. Um, two Christians, Eve Tushnet, I've talked about this book over and over, A Gay Christian's Guide to Unlearning Rejection, Experiencing God's Extravagant Love. If um, NPR bothers you, if you are conservative-leaning and you just get triggered with NPR, don't read this book. She will trigger you on every page. Um, in, instead, read this book, same view, but he just talks conservative speak and uh, conservatives read him and they say the same thing and you want to, um, yeah. Now, if you are left-leaning, maybe don't read this book. It, Spencer, don't read this one. It would trigger you. Um, but, but she knows liberal speak and she writes so beautifully about the way Loneliness makes more problems for gay Christians than sex. In fact, the problems in loneliness and secrecy, there are way worse problems than, than sexual immorality. And she achingly writes about this. The other one is by Guy Wesley Hill, Spiritual Friendships, Finding Love in the Church as a Celibate Gay Christian. He's the man. The, the, he's becoming a friend of mine. I was telling you about that lives, owns a house with his pastor. Um, that's Wesley Hill. So there are those recommendations. All right. You guys have been awesome. We are done. I'll pray. And then we'll see you later. Father, thanks so much for this time that we've had together. Help us, Lord. Help the church in Harrisonburg to um, believe in the better story that you offer and to live out of it with great wisdom and compassion. Thank you for Spencer. Thank you for Dylan. We know they are image bearers of yours. Um, help us to love them and all of the people around us um, who believe as we do or different than we do. Help us to be a church who has the posture of Christ. In his name I pray, amen. One more thing, I will be available on Wednesday from three to four in my office, open office hours if you wanna talk about this.